Before we read our gospel reading, just a note that there is an error in your bulletin. Uh, the hymn, middle hymn is 442, not 443, for those of you who like to use your hymnal. Uh, our gospel reading for this morning is Matthew chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 21 to 26. Listen to Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches others to do them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on your way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let us pray. Living God in whose freedom creation was born as a gift, free us from the need to possess, define and silence others, that we may rejoice in the strangeness of your beauty revealed in flesh and blood. Through Jesus Christ, our reconciliation. Amen. The words that we speak create the world that we inhabit. So what kind of world do you want to live in? Today is, sadly to me, our last day with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Next week is Transfiguration Sunday, and right after that is Lent. And of course, Lent takes us in whole other directions. And so over the last couple weeks, we've witness the beginning portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he has used his words to create a whole new world for us to dwell in, a world that he calls the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, it turns out, is not a place that we go to when we die. It's what happens in this world when we live as God intends us to live. And by the end of his sermon, Jesus will describe this world as a place in which we love our enemies, uh, one in which we practice generosity, in which we sh uh, practice nonviolence. It's a world in which we stop judging each other and learn to uh, treat others as we wish to be treated. This, Jesus says, is, is what the law and the prophets are all about. 
in the kingdom of heaven, we recognize ourselves as all belonging to the family of God. This is why Ada Maria Isasi Diaz renamed the kingdom of God, and she pulled out the G and, and called it the kingdom of God, wherein we take our place in the kinship of all creation. Or maybe an easier way to say it is what Dr. King called it, the beloved community. This is the end goal of all of Jesus' sermon, his whole ministry. It's the establishment of a beloved community. Last week, we heard Jesus' incredible, breathtaking words that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In speaking of our identity, Jesus says nothing about our sin, not a word. Instead, he tells us how valuable we are, that who we are is the very stuff of God. You are not merely made by God, but of God, that the divine image, that divine light dwells in you. It is also amazingly refreshing and positive that we might be tempted to think that Jesus is teaching us something completely new that no one's ever heard of before. But he makes it clear that's not what he's doing. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus has not come to reveal a different God to us, but instead to reveal to us how God has felt about us the whole time. You just didn't know it. Uh, or as Richard Rohr says, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us, but to change our mind about God. Because to God, you've always been the salt of the earth. You've always been the light of the world. But Jesus has not come to play fast and loose with God's law, but neither has he come merely to restate it. Instead, he says he's come to fulfill God's law, to, to fill it up, to fill it out, to bring God's law to its intended purpose. And that purpose has always only been human flourishing. That's the purpose of God's law. It's not uh, tests to see, will they obey this one? Let's just see. No, God gives us commandments that we might flourish, that we might become wise. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I don't know how you respond when you hear that, but when I usually hear it, I'm like, well, that's a real bummer for me. Because my righteousness isn't all that great. Uh, and, and the scribes and the Pharisees, whatever their flaws may be, like they were really good at this whole moral purity and following commandments things, and there's no way that I'm going to ever be able to exceed them. But Jesus' point is not that we need to finally get serious about obeying. That's not his point. He's saying that we need a different kind of righteousness, one that puts relationships ahead of rules. Think back to Advent. We heard... Uh, the story of Joseph, how when he discovers that Mary is pregnant, uh, that he was going to divorce her quietly so as to not expose her to public shame. And for that very reason, Matthew says Joseph is righteous. See, had he blindly followed the rules, then Mary would have been publicly shamed or worse, but he doesn't. He treats Mary with respect and honor even when he thinks that she's been unfaithful to him. And so Jesus learns what righteousness is from 
his adoptive father Joseph, that it's about honoring others, even those who have wronged us, and he wants us to do the same. He says, you've heard it said to those in ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. There is so much more that God wants for us than merely following the letter of the law. While most of us will never actually murder anyone, thank God, Jesus says we kill each other every day in our hearts and with our words. Does anyone think he's exaggerating? No, he's not. We live in an age of rage and contempt where we not only disagree with others, we despise them. And this creates hell on earth. When Jesus says that we are liable to the hell of fire, he's not talking about a post-mortem destination. He's using the Greek word Gehenna, not to be confused with Gehenna. <laughs> Gehenna was the literal trash pit that uh, burned outside of Jerusalem. There it is. You see it? You can visit it to this day. It looks pretty nice now, doesn't it? Clean up the trash, remove the fire. I know someone who played football there in hell said he had a great time. See, Jesus isn't threatening us with a punishment that's liable upon death. He is saying that our words create a hell that burns us alive here and now. And again, does anyone think that he's exaggerating? Dr. John Gottman is a psychologist at the University of Washington, and he uh, is famous for being able to uh, witness couples, uh, and, and, and within four minutes of watching them interact, he can predict whether or not they will be together uh, in three years with 94% accuracy. And what's amazing about his observations, it's not the absence of conflict that determines anything about a couple's longevity. It's their level of contempt. If one partner even uh, rolls their eyes at the other, uh, this is an indication that their relationship is not likely to last. This is true on the personal level. What's true for the personal is also true for the public. The insults that we hear in our public discourse are so frequent, they barely register anymore. Now, it wasn't that long ago that when someone yelled out, you lie to the president in the State of the Union address, it was a big scandal. Now it barely registers. And, and many Christians, instead of resisting the language of contempt, have instead relished it. Now, I don't think any of us are immune from this pull. Do you? And yet it is conduct unbecoming of the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and it is affecting our children as well. Multiple studies now have linked how when public leaders use contemptuous speech, there is a corresponding rise of bullying in our schools. Does this surprise anyone? When children witness adults use contemptuous and hateful speech, they end up doing the same, and this creates hell for our children. So how do you speak about those with whom 
you disagree. I'm glad you don't murder them. Good for you. Truly. But do you harbor anger towards them? Do you call them fools or snowflakes or racists or fascists? The righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is when our words affirm our kinship with all people, even those with whom we most adamantly disagree. Kingdom speech doesn't create hell for others, but instead reforges the bonds that we share, even amidst our disagreements. And in this time of deep polarization, we cannot control what other people say and do. But we can control what we say and what we do. So what kind of world will you create with the words that you speak? Will your words create hell for yourself and for others? Or will you create a world in which we all belong? Even if we don't all agree. Will your speech reflect the fact that you are the salt of the earth? That you are the light of the world? That's who you are. You are made by the God who has always only loved you from beginning to end. But not just you. God has always only loved your neighbors from beginning to end as well. And not just the neighbors you like and get along with, but those with whom you most adamantly disagree. And if God loves them, then so can you. That's the logic of Jesus' teaching. If God sees us as more valuable than we know, then there is no place for contempt in our speech or in our actions. And to belittle others is to belittle God. For God dwells in them just as much as God dwells in you. It is that simple. It is that hard. And you might mess up a time or two. Maybe when you're in the car, maybe when you're watching the news, you might mess up in your thoughts and in your speech, and that's okay. Because then you get to experience the extraordinary gift, the joy of being wrong. You can leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled using those powerful, world-altering words, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? There is such joy in being wrong. For there we discover humility. And it is in humility that we discover our humanity. Our words create the world that we inhabit. The truth is that God speaks so highly of you. God treasures you. So in this place, in this church, in this community, may our speech toward our neighbors reflect God's speech towards us. May we use our words to create a world where all can belong. In the kingdom of God, the beloved community. That's the world I want to inhabit. And that's the world we were made for. Amen.